Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 25 to 31. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 25 to 31. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles underneath the seats, and you could turn to page 898. And if you do not own your own Bible, we encourage you to take it home with you. Would you, would you rise in reverence for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship God with you and now share the word with you as well. Uh, if you're in person, you're here in person, then you might have noticed a few extra boxes. Uh, they are our air, air filters. I'm pretty excited about them. They filter up to 0.1 microns. And um, so that means, this is what it means. If you're feeling symptoms, what I want you to do is I want you to get up and go back home. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but I'm still excited about the air filters. Um, but we're just trying to do our due diligence, and I hope you do the same uh, during this time. Uh, let's pray before we start. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. So in last week's message, we were able to go over what it meant to prioritize the gospel and the spiritual regeneration it brings. And before that, we saw how Paul was urging Christians in Corinth to stay as they were and not use Christianity as an excuse to change your social, social, social status or even social structure. So if you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married and so on. But why? Because <clears throat> it is in your current state that you should honor and glorify God. It's in your current state that you should honor and glorify God. And your status may change over time, but it doesn't need to change in order for you to serve and obey God. 
In fact, chapter 7 in particular has a lot to do with the problems surrounding the issues of marriage. And so people had all these wrong ideas about marriage and God. And Paul was using, well, God was using Paul to correct these misunderstandings. And so before we get into this passage, this passage I wanted to say is going to 40, but I split it into two. It's really about singleness part one and singleness part two, but I wanted to subtitle it Bound to Christ. And so in this passage, before we get into the singleness topic that Paul gets into, I want to say this. Uh, Marriage isn't bad. Uh, I am married. I'm not against marriage. Marriage is an incredible gift to humanity. Uh, It's because people have these wrong ideas of marriage that the world is suffering. But this is where we see the completeness of the word of God. God's instruction isn't just one-sided or imbalanced because the Bible recognizes singleness as a gift. And the church must also recognize that this is clearly shown in Scripture. Singleness is a gift. The biblical norm is marriage, but it should not make us think then singleness is abnormal. And this is what people now think, but it's also how people back in the ancient world also thought. The Jewish people thought that if you are single and you are getting older, then you should be cursed. And sometimes I think that the Jewish culture is very Asian. But the Greeks also had these kinds of ideologies floating around as well. If you've ever studied uh, you know, Greek mythology or Greek poets, there's a man named a man named Aristophanes, he's a Greek comic poet, he would write about how humanity was originally two people, but they were like two people rolled up into one, like a ball, right? And some were male, male, some were male, female, some were female, female. And that was the original us. And the original us, quote-unquote us, the, were so powerful, it was terrifying to the gods, And the gods couldn't easily kill us off, right? And Zeus would figure out a way to weaken them. You know how you weaken these guys? You split them in half. And so Aristophanes would write that sex was this pitiful way that we're trying to put ourselves back together with. And so if that sounds beautiful to you, that's because he tried to make it beautiful. He literally made that up when he was writing it. But by making it poetic and adding elements of beauty to it, people wanted to adopt this kind of ideology. But unlike the Jews or certain Greek thought, or even Jerry Maguire, you are not incomplete if you are single. People start to panic if someone older isn't married. So there comes a push to simply get married, superseding the need to find the right person to marry. By pushing and shaming, you thwart the design and purpose of God. You neglect what God says about singleness, where it's a gift for some in verse 7, and that singleness is good in verse 8. And we'll see more of this kind of language in the coming passages this week and the next. Because one thing that people need to understand is this, marital status has no relation to salvation. Marital status has no relation to salvation. And this is what confuses even people today. 
And so back in the day, they were also confused. So they had questions and they submitted them to Paul. And this is essentially a Q&A episode on the podcast to the Corinthians, right? And so Paul is answering queries that people in Corinth had. What about this and what about that? And today we come upon this question. What about my single daughter or son? What should I do with them? Should they get married or should they stay single? And people wanted to falsely tie in marital status with spirituality. And so Paul adds this passage, which we'll go over this week and next, from verses 25 to 40, to encourage single people. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Betrothed in our language, of course, means someone engaged or promised to be given in marriage or promised to be married. However, the literal Greek word here is for virgins. And the virgins were synonymous with unmarried or single people. So Paul is addressing and speaking to single people here. He's addressing this portion to the single people, and he says this, there is that he has no command from the Lord. And what does that mean? Uh, we've addressed this in earlier passages where he would say in his parenthetical statements, I, not the Lord, or the Lord, not I. And they would be specifically referring to Jesus, the Lord, if he had said something in regards to a particular situation. Again, he mentions that here, Jesus hasn't, but he gives his own judgment then. Now, does that mean that we can take what he says here with a grain of salt? No, it doesn't. It does not mean that what he says is any less authoritative. Here he ends with the statement, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. It's by the mercy of God that Paul is made trustworthy. The word pistos means reliable, trustworthy, something that you can place your faith in. And if you're looking at this in context, the frequency of this kind of language and usage that Paul is doing, the veracity of his words, you should come to realize that Paul is writing scripture, which the apostle Peter clearly understood. And this is what Peter would also write in his second letter, in chapter 3, verse 15 to 16, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." What Paul writes may not be easy to understand, but it still is scripture. And so Paul writes principles and guidelines for the church to follow. And I suppose Paul gives these kinds of layerings so that people won't take his words lightly or as mere opinion. That's why he inserts not I, but the Lord, or the Lord, not I, and these things like that. He gives these kinds of layerings in between his statements so that people don't take his words lightly, or as mere opinion. And what are the words? Here it is in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Just stay as you are. Remain where you are. But why? Why? Because Paul says, 
because of the present distress. And what is this present distress? Some think that it was because of the famine that they were going through. At the time this letter was written, it was the end of Emperor Claudius's reign toward his end. And apparently there was a famine, and there was a famine severe enough that Claudius would have to intervene and circumvent some relief to the nations. And they were included in that. However, others believe that the word present, and, <clears throat> and the word present is anastosan. Anastosan means imminent as well, imminent. Most likely, I believe, it means imminent. Not only does it make the most sense in this context and passage, but in a very, very short while, very short while, maybe a year or maybe not even a year from the writing of this letter, a new emperor is crowned. His name was Nero. Nero would persecute Christians like no other persecution in history. <clears throat> Nero, and I've mentioned him in previous sermons, was an evil man. In the summer of 64 AD, uh, Rome suffered a terrible fire. And Rome wasn't just any city. Rome was the city, right? But this fire burned for six days and seven nights. And it consumed, it says in the records, that it consumed three quarters of the whole city. But the people of Rome, they would accuse Nero of starting the fire. He started the fire for his own amusement. That's the kind of guy Nero was. And so he needed to deflect this blame that was going to him. So to deflect the accusations, to placate the people, right? What he did was he blamed the fire on this just really new sect, this small sect, and they were Christians. He blamed the fire on Christians. And so he ordered the arrest of all people that were part of this sect called Christianity, and then he would torture and put them to death in the most horrific manner possible. And this is the kind of propaganda that he would promote. He wouldn't just say Christians were to blame for the fire. He would say that these Christians hated the human race. This is a sect. This is a group of people that hates us. And you see this kind of propaganda still used if you want to take a group and you want to demoralize them, you want to put them down, eventually you want to trap them, torture them, and kill them, you go, these guys, they even hate the world. And this is exactly what Nero did. The Greek historian Tacitus, he would record some of the ways that Nero would torture and kill Christians, much for his own sport and amusement. What he would do, and it's recorded that he would take animal hides and he would sew them on people, on Christians, and then he would sick rabid dogs so that the dogs would tear them apart. He would nail Christians to crosses and he would burn them. There is one way in particular he liked to burn Christians. He would cover them with wax and then he would tie them to a tree and then he would light the tree on fire. And this is what Tacitus would say is how he kept his garden lit at night. 
This is the word distress, right? This is not just distress like, oh, I'm distressed, I have a project due. That's not the kind of word distress that Paul is talking about. When he talks about this imminent distress, this word distress is also used in Luke 21, 23, when Jesus is telling the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is what he says in Luke 21, 23. Alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Remember what Jesus said about this in Matthew. This was the abomination of the desolation. So this word distress isn't for just some light trial. And if an incredible distress is about to come, it's better to hunker down and prepare for it instead of wading in the waters when there's a 50-foot wave about to crash into your ship. And we know that this persecution by Nero extended all the way from Rome to Corinth through the Book of Martyrs. In the Book of Martyrs, it's recorded that one of the people that Nero persecuted, tortured, and murdered was Erastus. Erastus is mentioned many times in the Bible, but Erastus is a man in Corinth, and he's also named as one who was tortured and killed under Nero. So after understanding this What's the principle for us to understand here? There are times when systems of the world will give us such tremendous pressure that it may not be good to marry. It may be better not to marry. But this principle can also be easily applied to personal distress. Theologians also mention that this is about tensions that exist between the new creation that we have and the old flesh that's trying to come up and cause distress. And we'll get into that too, because it's difficult to be a Christian. And it will also be difficult to be a married Christian then. This is why Paul saw so much good in singleness. If you have this gift the gift of singleness, he says don't get married and it will be such a good thing because of the tremendous distress that was about to come. Also, if you stay single now in the light of imminent distress, that's better too. And this reiterates the principle from the passage prior. This is what he says in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In this way, stay or remain as you are. If you're bound, meaning you're married, don't get unmarried. Are you single? Then stay single. And just in case you've heard this and you thought, ah, marriage is a bad thing, marriage is sinful, he says in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I put the emphasis on I because he does too. He says the word I, ego. So that's an emphasis. That's how you would have read this. And I would spare you that. If you marry, it's not a sin that you've married. Marriage is the normative state. There's nothing sinful about it. And he repeats it for both sexes. But he gives us reasons why you shouldn't seek marriage. That's right. You shouldn't seek marriage because those that marry will have worldly troubles worldly is from the word sarks and i mention this because we have gone over this word 
It means flesh. It means that when you marry, you will have troubles of the flesh. So it is not a sin to get married. It is still a norm, meaning the majority state of people will get married. It's a design of God. Nevertheless, this state will give you trouble of the flesh. And that can be a little confusing, so that's why he gets into these words. Trouble can also be translated as oppression. So the oppression of the flesh is something that you will have to be concerned with when you get married. And Paul would spare us from that. Trouble does come from the flesh. Earlier, we learned from the passages earlier that we wanted to be pneumaticos, people of the spirit, and not sarkinos, people of the flesh. And marriage brings trouble of that of the flesh. How can this be? When I got married, I realized something, and I realized it very deeply. My wife is a sinner. It's true. But I also realized something even worse than that. Even worse than that. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. You put two sinners together, trouble happens. Oppression, tribulation. These are the symptoms for what this word thalipsis, trouble, means, which is translated as such. It's a pressure. It's a pressing. Like when you press olives to make olive oil. And you add to that children. Now you have little troubles running around. There's trouble just everywhere in your family. You know, there's a saying that I've told to a few of you and that I've heard that if you're single, your highest capacity for happiness is uh, seven, but then your lowest capacity is a minus seven. And then when you get married, your highest capacity for happiness is a 10, but your lowest capacity goes down to negative 10. And then when you have children, it goes up to infinity and down to negative infinity. But I think Francis Bacon also said it well, probably better, when he said that he that hath wife and children hath given hostages to fortune. If you don't get that, that's fine. It's probably not that edifying anyway. But in the pressure, in the pressure, sarks comes out. And here are some qualities. Anger. Why is it that some people think that once you get married, you won't get angry? If you have anger problems now, it will be heightened when you get married. You can get the Pastor Gene stamp of approval guarantee right there. Why do people think that? If you have anger problems now, it'll be heightened once you get married. And sometimes when you get married, you didn't even know you had anger problems and it comes out. Um, I'm going to say a bunch of these things here. Uh, I would encourage you not to look at your spouse and give them away. But their selfishness, you know, your self-centeredness is magnified once you get married. Not, it doesn't go down. What about even stupidity of the other person? You would think, how could I have married someone so stupid? Dishonesty, pride, overindulgence overindulgence, thoughtlessness, the list goes on. But there are also secret sins. I thought that my problems would go away, but instead marriage has amplified them. This is why there is a saying that the only thing worse than waiting is wishing you had. 
deep sins won't go away simply because you get married. In fact, it will make them worse. Lust before marriage will only manifest into something heinous and destructive once you get married. It doesn't go away because you get married, and it never goes away simply because you get married. What about loneliness? Loneliness will not go away once you get married either. In fact, you'll drag your partner into loneliness as well. So you're like, but I thought all these things would be helped once I got married. And you're like, no, it's absolutely not too. When Paul talks about sarks, he's talking about all these things. So then, what is marriage the solution to? Marriage is the solution to one thing and one thing only. It is the solution to being obedient to God's will. You should only marry in obedience to God's will. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though, as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So what does he mean by this? The appointed time has grown very short. Appointed time is from the one word, these two words, appointed time, is from the word kairos. Kairos is different from the other word in Greek that's translated as time, which is chronos. So chronos is different from kairos. And so the translators use these two words, kairos, to translate kairos, rather, appointed time. And that means it's not noting time signature. Kairos is talking about a period that is calling for action. This is a period that's calling for action in Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time. That's kairos. You know the kairos that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. With every passing hour, time is shortening. And if our time here is so short, then why are you focusing so much on the temporal? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, it says, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Therefore, in this limited time that we have, what are we to do? How are we to live? And Paul references five things that we've read. Number one, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Some of you may have peaked a smile. You better wipe that smile off quick. Otherwise, it's the couch for you tonight. But what, this is what it means. Marriage is part of a passing system, okay? Marriage isn't eternal. We even say in our vows that it's until death do us part, 
And while the covenant is serious, it is also temporal. And we should remember the eternal reality to which marriage points. In Colossians 3.2, it says, Set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. People still think that marriage is still an excuse for not to serve the church or do any mission work. Think about this kind of thinking. If having a family is keeping you from serving the church, preaching the gospel, doing what God wants you to do as a Christian, can you honestly say that after reading what Paul is writing, that your priorities are straight, that you have in mind the things of heaven and not earth? And this is why Paul uses hyperbole. Hyperbole is used as a teaching method in the Bible, and it should be taken as such because it should shake us, the complacency off of us, so that we can be set straight again. Number two, those who mourn live as though they are not mourning. When we weep, we are warned not to get too attached to the emotions of the flesh. If sadness is temporary, and it is, how much weight should you put on the sadness of this world. Again, hyperbole is used to show that we not that not to show that we shouldn't mourn, but it's showing us how to mourn. Jesus used hyperbole when he said in Luke chapter 14 verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, this doesn't mean that you need to go to your parents right now and spit in their face. But it's to show the huge disparity that should be present in your life. The enormous gap that you have between following Christ and everything else. When we mourn, we don't mourn in finality. We don't mourn that this is the end. Quite the opposite. This is temporal. And when we mourn, we remember that Jesus himself is the one that promised that he will wipe away every tear himself. Number three, those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. And again, don't fall victim to the world's pleasures and the emotions it brings. There can be joy in the world, but believers know that the ultimate and purest joy will be when we see Christ in heaven. There is a certain level then of detachment that the believer has not only to mourning, but also rejoicing when it comes to the things of this world. Number four, those who buy live as though they don't have anything. Don't get caught up in the material things of this world. Don't care so much about new possessions. Again, think of the imminent situation that the, Christ, uh, the Christians in Corinth were about to face and that they were facing. Why would you invest so much in the material if that were the case? Look back at 64 AD. Look at history. Look at what happened to them. Imagine they were investing so much into buying a new house or a new car. But a nice house and a new car are good things to have, but it should take a distant backseat to what? To your spiritual life. 
And when you're thinking more about what is in your bank account than what is in your heavenly account, you have gotten things upside down and you are thinking more of earthly things than heavenly ones. Don't get overoccupied with the things of the world. Again, in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Number five. Those who have dealing with the world live as though they had none. If you're simply living for pleasure, if you're looking for a good time or living for a good time, you have been sold a bill of goods. That means you have been cheated from the reality of the eternal and you've swapped it for what is fading. People always have these lies that they will try to convince you of. If you have money, save it, travel the world, invest, retire well, see all the sights. And then I would say, and then what? And then what? Let's say you got everything you wanted. What if you went and saw every single great wonder of the world? How much of that could you transfer into spiritual currency? For the present form of this world is passing away. Because this is the present schema, the present form. This is the schematic of the world. And this schematic of the world is passing, it's fading, it is vanishing. If people have convinced you into thinking that this world is all that there is, then all that there is is vanishing. What's the importance of holding onto illusion more tightly? Rather, hold on to the eternal. In 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but it goes to 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I face as human beings. And this is the problem, that God is utterly holy and just, and I am utterly not. At the end of my life, I will be judged for it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience and then offered that life as a perfect sacrifice to God for me. This is something that I could have never done, but Jesus has done for me. What was temporal, fading, passing away, God would take and he would give us rather the eternal. By sheer grace, I am saved and have been given this faith in the perfect Savior. And the only way for you to be saved is to put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is what the eternal word of God makes clear. It's not by works, but it's by faith that you are justified. Placing your faith in God is setting your feet upon the eternal, the eternal rock of salvation. It's not something that will fade away and you will have it slip out from under your feet. This is the only way 
that you can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death by placing your faith in him. And then it isn't about you, but it's about God who will hold you through all of eternity. For those of us that have placed their trust in Christ, you would do well to be reminded that the pressures of the world will be tough. But it is Christ who is the author and perfecter of your faith. And that's why we strive. That's why we admonish, encourage, rebuke, correct. That's why we continue to live in obedience to everything that Christ has taught us. For this is Christ's promise, that he will wash and sanctify his church. So that's why we place our trust in him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We have pressures of the world, whether we are single or married, whatever we are. But instead of succumbing and giving in and being pressed down by the pressures of the world, Lord God, we ask that you give us your mercy. Those that call out your name, those that cry out to you, oh God, do not turn a deaf ear, but I pray that you would bring them to you now. Let's take this time to pray, and let's pray that we would not be people of the world, but rather God would continue to sanctify us so that we, we would be spiritual people, pneumaticos, people of Christ in every way, that we would not hold on to the things that are temporal, but rather we would hold on to the things that are eternal in Christ. Let's pray.